0: This episode of the Blockhash podcast is sponsored by my friend Tiger at ITZTiger.Music on Instagram. He does all the audio tracks for the Blockhash podcast. He's on Spotify, SoundCloud, and iTunes. Go check him out. The podcast is also sponsored by Day and Night, the ultimate revolution in vaping batteries, the double-bladed lightsaber of vaping. Why enjoy one flavor when you can enjoy two flavors at the same time? Go check them out on Instagram at day night battery. But wait, the podcast is also sponsored by Bengali, the new hip clothing brand that is about to take Medellin by storm. Quality clothing for men that fits right and that is stylish at the same time. I love it. I got tons of it. And you'll see me wearing it on the podcast. Get yours now. Go to Bengali.shop on Instagram. Lastly, be sure to sign up for the Blockchain Insider newsletter. For only $250 a month, you will get weekly updates on the crypto market, my top investment picks, and advanced analysis to help you make better informed investment decisions. You can't put a price on that. So go click on the link in the description and sign up today. Hey guys, how's it going? It is Friday, July 9th, episode 153, last episode of the week, I promise. Today I have Tashar Agrawal, CEO of Persistence. Persistence is a fully interoperable protocol and evolving ecosystem of services built for seamless integration across blockchains. Tashar is a Forbes 30 under 30 Asian nominee for his work in finance and venture capital. The guy is really smart. This is a great project and you guys are going to learn a lot. Um, you know about persistence in this episode. So be sure to subscribe and share this episode with somebody that you think would like to learn more about blockchain, crypto, persistence, and Tushar. Enjoy. Tushar, Tushar, how do I see you first time again? Tashar. Tashar is good. Okay, cool. Tashar, welcome to the BlockHash podcast. Thank you for taking the time to come on. Really appreciate it. Um, how you doing, man? Where are you based?
1: Uh, hi, Brandon, and, um, you know, uh, hello to all the BlockHash podcast listeners. Um, I'm based out of India. Um, I kind of shuttled between Singapore and India. And, uh, you know, prior to COVID was kind of jumping around the world.
0: But, you know, those are my two big bases. Yeah, you did mention that you were in uh, Singapore for like, what, a decade?
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, Singapore is like first home or second home. Uh, it's, it's where my crypto career began as well. And I think this time around, maybe not so vibrant, but I think kind of in the 2017-18 run-up, you know, Singapore was an extremely vibrant mm-hmm. uh, community. I think now it's sort of spread around a little bit more, um, but it, it is an exciting place from a, capital markets perspective,
0: at least in Asia. Yeah. Did you, so do you think that the whole crypto, you know, community that's, you know, been in Singapore has kind of maybe diversified a little bit and spread out compared to like three, four years ago, it's definitely a different market now.
1: Uh, Absolutely. So again, Singapore was never developer focused. Uh, It was always more, you know, capital driven. So there was a lot of deal making, Mm -hmm. a lot of hedge funds. Um, And so even right now there is a lot of activity. Um, but more from a hedge fund perspective, uh, and not so because of its regulatory friendly stance, um, but not, not so much from a development perspective. So back in 2017, 18, I think people had fewer avenues to fundraise as well. Um, now I think with the run-up in crypto, obviously markets are sort of cooling off, um, today in particular, uh, you know, we're recording on the 21st of June. Um, but Yeah. I mean, now, you know, folks can raise from anywhere in the world and you don't need to be in Singapore. Um, But so I think that's why I think it's gotten diluted a little bit, but still a very exciting place. And, you know, because of his regulatory friendly stance, I know a lot of people are moving to Singapore as well from the West. Um,
0: You know, people who've done well for themselves. So, yeah, definitely a place you can't ignore. Yeah, what are some of those regulatory stunts that you're talking about that make it you know, an attractive place for someone that has money that wants to be in crypto that might be wanting to um i don't know start a hedge fund or invest into the space or yada yada
1: yeah i think one is uh, you know from a personal perspective um uh, there are no capital gains tax or taxes on dividends mm-hmm. um but uh, in general you know uh, so you know, it's a good way to sort of uh, introduce myself as well. Um, Mm. So prior to starting Persistence, which I'm leading right now, I was the first employee at Lunex Ventures, which is the crypto arm of a traditional venture capital fund uh, called Golden Gate Ventures. Uh, Mm. And so Lunex was the first regulated and properly structured venture capital, a crypto venture capital fund in Southeast Asia that was backed by a traditional VC. Um, So I've, had the fortune of working very closely with the Monetary Authority of Singapore, um, which is the local regulatory body. And, um, you know, there is a division within the MAS, as it's called, that is more fintech driven. And like they do small things like, you know, those the people working in the fintech division of MAS are allowed to wear shorts and slippers to work. You know? So imagine, you know, folks working in a regulatory body, you know, rocking up to work in, in shorts. And so I think those are small cultural things that Singapore does, it's a tiny island state. And so it has to be extremely forward thinking from multiple perspectives. So I think that's why the government has done a phenomenal job um, in terms of um, creating that environment and, and facilitating um, innovation and attracting the best talent from the world to move
0: to Singapore and and build from there. You still think that's one of the places to be like if you really want to get into the crypto community and invest and everything, or do you think that's changed over the last three or four years? Because I know it's a very you know, different world, very different market right now in terms of you know crypto and blockchain. Yeah, I, I
1: don't think you need to be in Singapore.
0: Uh, I,
1: I think things, and I think COVID has kind of helped with that as well, right? You could be in Colombia and still yeah. be you know, connected to anyone and everyone in the world. I think it really comes down to how good you are, how strong is your network and uh, and how curious you are, um, how much do you know, how much value can you add? I think it comes down to those things, uh, I guess, in the spirit of decentralization. Um, so I, I don't think you don't you don't need to be in any place. Um, Although I think there are benefits of being in certain locations. Like I think being in SF truly helps. Uh, Being in Berlin really helps. There's a lot of activity there. Uh, But again, you know, like I said, I straddle between Singapore and India. I think India's, my thesis was that if you look at the traditional um, startup and venture capital space, India has the third largest number of unicorns today after the US and China. Mm-hmm. And um, it's about 35 to 40 unicorns, uh, but about 80% of them were started after the year 2010, which is almost 10 to 15 years after startups of similar sizes came about in the U S and China. So my thought process is and was, um, that, you know, you know, da- there's a huge amount of talent um, in India and people are hungry. They're passionate, they're ambitious. But it typically operates with a bit of a lag, so my thought process was that I was going to leverage, you know, because of the time I spent in Singapore and having traveled, you know, in and around Asia to, you know, Korea and Hong Kong and China, uh, I'd built a decent network, um, at least in this part of the world. I wanted to leverage that, and a little bit in the U.S. as well. So I wanted to leverage that while sort of, you know, building teams out of out of India, and so try to get best of both worlds so I think I think uh, you know you fast-forward maybe three four more years I think you know India is going to be one of those hot spots as well already see that happening um, and you know Ch- us has its own ecosystem right of right. fund managers and exchanges and you know that whole ecosystem is there. China has its own ecosystem uh, which is very like it can sustain itself it has exchanges and farms and entrepreneurs I think something similar will happen in India as well, where you see funds you know, cropping up and, um, you know, entrepreneurs coming up and and higher caliber entrepreneurs. Uh, so I think it's going to be super exciting. Obviously the government hasn't been too friendly thus far, um, but, and so it's, it's a little bit adversarial, um, but then you get, you know, entrepreneurs who are willing to fight the good fight, um, who, and you know, take the risk uh, to,
0: to come out and, and, you know, build these things? Yeah, the, your government has definitely been very tough on crypto, <laughs> which I imagine maybe makes the sentiment or hurts the sentiment a little bit in the country. Maybe I'm wrong about that. Um, but, I mean, do you see a lot of demands for, you know, crypto and fintech and blockchain uh, within India, you know, with government aside and what their opinion is? Um, you see that like that interest, that passion, that demand, the same that you'd see in the West.
1: Yeah, um, absolutely, man. I think it's it's happening. I think, you know, there's probably five to seven really, really high quality startups. Um, and I would say persistence is one of them. Um, uh, and um, but there's a whole bunch of like long tail startups that are mm-hmm. you know, coming about, you know, partly. Obviously, it's a byproduct of the run up in the markets that we've seen as well. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think, you know, every bull market creates a few new, uh, you know, entities and organizations and projects that, you know, uh, truly stand the test of time. So, but if you, just from an economic perspective, if you see, you know, um, GDP of India is about, I think two and a half to 3 trillion. Um, and India is, I think the, I think the top five in terms of size of economies, but I think in the next sort of three to five years we'll probably see the combined market cap of indian projects to be maybe close to 100 billion dollars um and you know matic itself is 10 billion plus um which is an indian project uh, so um from that perspective 100 billion dollars out of three trillion that's already more than three percent of the gdp um of the fifth biggest economy in the world um so yeah, so I mean, that, and that's not a joke um, anymore. So uh, yeah, I think from from that perspective, you know, at one point, it, it'll the government will just I think have to be like, okay, yes, you know, we'll try to see how to bring it into um, the regulatory purview and give some clarity um, to all the
0: stakeholders in the industry. Gotcha. Gotcha. Yeah, i also saw that you made a forbes 30 under 30 in, in asia too am i right that that's correct man yeah, yeah congrats. that's that's always cool those are cool accomplishments
1: yeah it was a, it was a young adulthood uh, dream <laughs> i didn't know how to make it happen but i was glad that it can happen this year
0: yeah, I'm, I got about three more years, so I'm, I'm going to keep trying. We'll see what happens. I don't know if they could have a podcast, but. <laughs> yeah,
1: well, nice. I, 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 I mean, I, I started with a podcast as well, right? I think a podcast is one of the best ways, one of the most permissionless ways to get access to interesting people. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's how I started my career in the industry as well, by just interviewing really high quality stakeholders and building relationships with them and then going out of my way to help them out. Um, and that led to the gig at Lunex, which led me to meet a lot of my co-founders at Persistence and the team members at Persistence. And so, you know, as the cliche goes, the dots connect backwards and you know in crypto, those dots can connect very quickly. So yeah um, I think three years can be
0: yeah. Yeah, podcast yeah, can really be a good entryway into uh, into the industry. I've met so many awesome people. Um, You know, I've met people that are well known. I've also met people that I didn't know of before that ended up, you know, becoming good friends of mine or that um, I learned a whole bunch from or that I I know sharing with other people that also enjoyed. um, I don't know. It's just a really fun medium. I think people enjoy podcasts a little bit more than they do other forms of media nowadays because there's so so many kinds um, that you get inundated with. And I feel like podcasting is just simple and easy to consume, you know, as long as you keep it um, you know, relatively short, authentic, and not too over the top or anything crazy. Um, I don't know. I just think it's really, really solid medium. Yeah, and sometimes
1: being over the top helps as well. You know, sometimes it's, it's a double yeah, it does. So I, I guess there's no, you know, no one way to skin the cat, but um, you know, definitely a great way uh to build a network and, and to learn as well from some of the top folks in the world.
0: Yeah, absolutely um so let's learn a bit more from you so tell me about persistence um, i'm very curious you know what you guys are doing um you know as a startup um what are you guys doing in crypto and blockchain what is your what's your mission
1: yeah um you know high level uh, and honestly no one has asked us uh, what mm-hmm. our mission is but i think high level it's to you know try and bring as many asset classes into the crypto ecosystem as possible Um, And we've kind of done that as well, which is reflected in the products that we've put out. So, you know, whether that is commodities, whether that is, um, you know, very, very crypto native uh, products and assets, we essentially want to make sure that we're working with, you know, as many different kinds of assets as possible. Um, Mm -hmm. And, you know, persistence in a nutshell is an ecosystem of financial applications, which goes in tandem with, the attempt to create multiple asset classes. Um, We started with our first use case uh, is called Comdex, which is a decentralized commodity trading application. Mm -hmm. Uh, So we work with a bunch of family, uh, it's geared towards institutional folks and not so much crypto native folks. Um, But essentially it's a blockchain powered, decentralized commodity trading platform that facilitates the trading of physical commodities on a ship. So things like wheat, soya, bean, copper, Um, So that's the first product. Um, Our journey has been very similar to that of Terra, if you're familiar with Terra, where uh, Terra is a South Korean project, so Terra itself is a tenement-based chain. We are a tenement-based chain as well, persistence. And then they have Chai as a non-crypto user-facing application, uh, which is focused on e-commerce payments and some of the inefficiencies that exist in that vertical. Uh, For us, that focus on the real-world aspect was through commodity trading. And then Terra came up with Anchor protocol, Mirror protocol, which are a bunch of crypto-native applications. We have P-stake, which is a liquid staking application, and then we're working on a, you know, a few other things um, as well. Um, but you know, from a you know high-level perspective, we've got uh, the commodity trading stuff and then stuff on the liquid staking side um, to give you a little bit more color. Um, so on the Comdex front, because we work with physical commodities. Every physical commodity is unique, similar to every crypto kitty is unique. So, we represent some of these commodities on chain using NFTs. That has also resulted in what we call Asset Mantle, which is more of a framework of issuing inter chain NFTs. So, so far, NFTs have resided mostly within the Ethereum ecosystem, but we're trying to create uh, inter chain NFTs or at least NFTs that can jump from one chain to another. So, okay. Comdex and Asset Mantle is our stuff on the NFT side. Mm-hmm. and then on the staking side we have um, uh, um p stake which is the liquid staking application we also run one of the largest validator nodes uh, in southeast asia and south asia uh, that's an entity called audit.1 so we have about 300 million assets under delegation um, on on audit 1 nodes across multiple cosmos and non cosmos based uh, proof mm-hmm. of stake uh, blockchain so big focus on the nft stuff and the you know, POS stuff. Right now, we're most excited about P-stake, uh, which is the liquid staking application that went live middle of June. Uh, mm-hmm. So that was our alpha or like sort of bug bounty launch. Um, and, um, you know, we've seen uh, right now, we're just ironing out, uh, you know, some of the you know, bugs in the code and, you know, some of the UI fixes, um, you know, that are required. And um, yeah uh, around the 10th of july or so we're going to be launching with actual financial assets at stake we're having multiple sort of fun activities in the build up to that uh to the 10th uh, july
0: launch um
1: but yeah, yeah, yeah. happy to, happy to, to take
0: one double click on that yeah yeah well, let's expand on Take a little bit because i know you got the, um, a mainnet for that coming out you know in july here pretty soon mm-hmm. Um, can you explain it a little bit more in, um, in simple terms as well? Like what, what you guys are doing with it? And what's the, I guess what the goal is.
1: Yeah. Um, do you
0: hold any proof of stake assets? So any, I don't know, any atoms, dots, I think I, I sold a lot of stuff in the last couple of weeks because the market has not right. been good and I don't want to lose all my money, <laughs> but yeah. generally I've been holding, the, um, like Tezos. I think you get a good yield on Tezos. Um, yeah. What was another one? Uh, it's on the tip of my tongue. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah it's, it,
0: that's <laughs> fine. So, so,
1: so let's, so yeah, let's take the example of Tezos, right? So what happens is you have some, you know, XTZ and and you stake it, um, and, and you keep getting a decent yield, right? I think it's somewhere between I think seven to fifteen percent. I don't know the exact yield for Tezos. Um, it might be slightly lower than that, also, as far as I remember for Tezos, but. Now the thing is you've staked your assets you're getting a decent yield and you know um you're like that's fine but what if um while you have your tesos staked um what if there was a product that issued you you know uh, a representative coin that gives you ownership to that underlying xtz that has been staked Mm -hmm. and this representative coin can be used as collateral in borrowing lending platforms Uh, If you want to borrow USDC, or if it can be this representative coin can be supplied as liquidity to, um, you know, decentralized exchanges and earn transaction fees. So that is exactly what PStake does, where we issue representative coins that give you ownership of that underlying coin that has been staked. And this representative coin can then be used within multiple DeFi applications. For various things, so we're going to market with atoms and other Tenderman based coins. So mm-hmm. folks who are you know holding on to atoms, the current yield is about 10%. So either they can uh, supply, uh, they can just take their atoms and earn the 10% and be happy, or uh, what we do is we issue what we call P atoms, uh, which continue to earn you yield in the form of atoms, but mm-hmm. at the same time. You can use this P atom token um, as a collateral on a borrowing lending platform to leverage up or uh, to supply liquidity um, to a Uniswap, Sushi Swap, or other dexes. Um, so that's what we're trying to do, and so it's great for the end user because suddenly the end users APYs go up. It is great for the underlying protocol itself because. Um, now stakeholders have greater incentives to stake uh, uh, their coins, and as such, the network security of the underlying protocol goes up. Mm-hmm. And obviously, it's great for us because our product is getting more traction. So it's uh, essentially, you know, we've tried to create a win-win-win situation for all
0: participants and stakeholders involved. That's really cool. So when when's that plan to come out, Mainnet?
1: Yeah. So, um, you know, like I mentioned, we've done the bug bounty launch, uh, which is going to run till I think the 25th of June, collecting all the feedback. We have security audits going on parallel. First of July, we launched what is called a staking competition uh, just to, you know, sort of let folks battle it out in, in, you know, um, very, very real life kind of situations um, which will again, give us more feedback about how users are interacting with the product. And then 10th of July, is what we're targeting for um, an actual launch with real financial assets at stake. Right now it's
0: just test coins mm-hmm. that are being used. Cool, so like if I wanted to use PStake, you know, say we get to that point, um, you know, do you have to go to a certain website? Is it gonna be integrated into like your browser? Or what's the ease of use and access point?
1: Yeah, so the website is called pstake.finance. Um, uh, right now, if you want to participate in the alpha launch, you can just go to alpha.pstake.finance. Um, and, uh, you know, right now you would need to use, uh, go through the instruction manual on how to get test tokens and things like that. So all of that is there on the pstake.finance website, um, in terms of the kind of step-by-step approach on how to use it. And, um, yeah. Uh,
0: so yeah, that's, that's the website. Okay. Got it. Um, I'll be sure to get that from you later and put it in the description for the episode and everything. Um, another question. So you mentioned you know, being able to essentially tokenize like physical commodities and that's kind of something you guys do as well. Um, and maybe it's like NFTs and stuff. Um, when you say physical commodities, what are you talking about? Are you talking about like gold and silver? Are you talking about corn and bread? Or are you talking about... Uh, so I mean, commodities could be anything. Yeah.
1: Um, yeah, so... Um, you know, Comdex is essentially trying to do two things as well. One is the more of the institutional play, which is like physical commodities, not gold and silver, but more like, um, um, you know, copper uh, or um, barley, soya bean, uh, wheat. And essentially what happens is, um, you know, Comdex on the institutional side focuses on um, trading of bills of lading, a bill of lading is a document that gives you ownership of goods that are traveling on a ship. Mm -hmm. Um, and while goods are on the ship, they change several hands, typically six to seven, uh, times during the sort of, you know, 30, 60, 90 day voyage, um, that the ship undertakes. Um, and these are just, you know, primarily speculators who want to speculate on various commodities. Uh, It's a very opaque market, very difficult to enter, need huge amounts of capital to enter. Um, So it's essentially shrouded in mystery, very lowly regulated as well. Um, And so you don't hear much about it. You hear a lot about stocks and bonds and gold and silver, but, uh, or even commodities, but the standardized contracts, but these are not standardized contracts because these are wheat originating from Australia is different from wheat originating from Canada, for example. so that's on the institutional side but you know we sort of have a DeFi play within Comdex as well which is more like synthetic commodities so something like what synthetics has been doing or what mirror protocol has been doing where you have uh, these synthetic assets like synthetic you know like texan oil or synthetic um Uh, you know xau which is gold or these synthetic assets that can be where you have an oracle and you you know pull the price and allow folks to permissionlessly trade it around the world and i think you know if you look at the macro factors um you you know uh with you know inflation rising and all these sorts of things um you know i think people will focus obviously so far has been, you know, very sexy and attractive to like trade the Tesla stock or, you know, um, trade like, you know, Netflix or, you know, Apple, Google, uh, or like stuff like GME. Um, But I think going forward, the macro environment that we're entering in, uh, it it might become, you know, it just takes one TikToker to talk about like commodities and suddenly commodities are blowing up. Um, Yeah. And uh, and so, and these are like thinly traded markets, market caps are not that high. So, you know, like truly interesting things can happen in the commodity space. And so, you know, from from that perspective, we have a DeFi play, although that's a little bit less evolved at the moment because we're so busy with the launch of p But from an ideation perspective, you know, super excited to, you know, bring this whole new asset class that most folks do not usually interact with most folks do not have the access to interact with such um products but bring that into crypto
0: is the idea you know with the synthetic assets mainly to give people the ability to to have access to trading tools and to trade this stuff you know regardless of where they are and what kind of access they have or are there other like real world uses for it, like in i don't know supply chain or uh, verification of an item or a product or a service or um, or is it mainly focused on the trading aspects? I know it could go a number of different directions. That's
1: a great question, man. So the DeFi play is more of just pure trading, mm-hmm. uh, pure speculation. But the institutional play that we have, where we work with multiple family offices, um, that has a more of a real-world play, mm-hmm. where you're actually getting involved in the supply chain and you're managing the supply chain risk and... Um, you're actually working with folks or these family offices work with um, the actual producers or the farmers the large farmers uh, and, and things like that and so there is the verification play and there is that audit trail uh, play but that's more on the institutional side it's not that sexy it's really slow um, you know there are still question marks as to how much value add there is from an you know from that perspective it's still there but you know, it's right. not not the super super most exciting thing.
0: Yeah, yeah, it, it, it can be exciting. I guess it depends on like what the application use case is and how it's being presented. But, you know, a lot of this stuff, you know, in the end will be backend technology. Most people don't really think about, like no one really thinks about how the internet works. It just works. <laughs> you can go to Google, find whatever you want. Um, you know, I imagine blockchain will be very similar one day when it is like fully mainstream and utilized by everybody. And you're not going to ask, about confirmation times and gas fees and what swaps and protocols you want to use it's going to be so easy at the user level uh the user interface level that you know people are just going to be pushing buttons so no one wants to think about it <laughs> they just want things to happen
1: or, or not man i don't know like it's still a, i've thought about this quite a bit and uh i mean if you look at most of finance and i think the biggest application of crypto has been in the know, uh, within the, you know, finance or the fintech domain, um, there are parts of finance which are more geared towards, you know, retail and the masses, Mm -hmm. Um, but there are parts of finance that are just shrouded in mystery, Mm -hmm. right? Like it's just so complex that there's a few hundred people or a few thousand people in the world understand. And, you know, the large part of DeFi applications are actually headed in that direction where Mm-hmm. Because of that composability, if you don't know how a if one product works and that product is integrated into another product, which takes the LP token from that product, ultimately you don't know where the risk is or it's very difficult for an average person to determine who doesn't have context or is entering the industry. If it's a basic payment, sure, it makes sense. You want to take out a basic loan, you know, makes sense, mm-hmm. you know. but some of these tools that are being built are just so complex, um, Mm -hmm. that, um, yeah, you, you don't know, um, if, you know, they will be geared for like mass adoption, similar to how a lot of financial products today are just used by some of the large organizations, large corporates to hedge or speculate, um, but it's not
0: available for like mass use. Yeah, some of, these, some of these topics and some of these white papers that come out sometimes, they're so, like, really intricate. Like, I don't know how anyone would ever be able to really understand them sometimes, but, like, it, they get really deep. Everyone's got their own theories in the space and how to go about launching certain things and running certain applications, solving certain problems. And it's a constant battle for me to keep up with it all and try to keep learning it. Um, so I imagine it's going to be really hard for a lot of people unless you're like the very few in the world that need it, or you're a large institution or a corporation. So I think there are going to be like two sides of the entire industry will be the user side. It's like really simple, simplified, easy to use. And then it'll be the really complex side, similar to finance where it's like, you know, there's parts of finance where it's as simple as, Oh, you push a button. Money goes from point A to point B, you know, type of thing. Oh, push a button, get a loan um versus all the complex financial tools out there that you know benefit somebody that's i guess highly um involved in the industry has more capital on the line is a bigger company so it, it'll be fun to see how that shapes out
1: absolutely man um and you know like i myself like i'm deeply entrenched into the industry but mm-hmm. I have a full re- full-time research team to just stay on top of things so it's you know Oh, but know. you put, yeah, but 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 you put it beautifully that you know, like you know, currently finance works that way as well. Um, you have like payment applications or like you know, uh, borrowing lending applications that are super simple to use, and then you have the real complex stuff. And so I think, uh, you know, crypto is just enabling a parallel financial ecosystem, so to speak. Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah I, I can push a button on my Raya app. Or my Venmo app, and I can, or, or PayPal, for example, send money anywhere in the world without a problem, not gonna have any issue. Um, and it only takes me like 10 seconds to do it. <laughs> okay, maybe like 30 seconds, but it's, it's super simple and easy to use, and anyone can do it. Then there's like you know, other financial tools you see, and you're just like, what the hell is that? I'm trying to understand it. And it's definitely not meant for me, meant for somebody else, but <laughs> I see the similarities though. anyways um i think we've been going for a while Tashar, thanks for you know taking the time to come on the podcast talk about persistence and pea stake and um, synthetic assets uh commodities physical commodities you know being backed by blockchain stuff like that um you know asia talking about singapore and india it hit a whole bunch of different topics so i think it'll be a good episode yeah. very informational appreciate it man Uh,
1: absolutely it was an absolute pleasure to be on uh, as well and you know thank you for the time brandon